Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview composer, professor, and saxophonist from Oklahoma City, Sherelle Cassidy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. See, we have today. See, I already screwed up. We have Sherelle Cassidy with us. Ma'am, thank you for joining us. All right. Thank you for having me. I give a short introduction and then we get into it. Okay. Hey, everyone. I'm Sherelle Cassidy, um, saxophonist, recording artist, uh, professor, and I'm happy to be here with you today. Um, Check out www.sherellecassidy.com for my bio and more information. Okay, cool. First thing I want to say, you know you're one of my favorite sax players right now on the scene? Wow. Yeah, your Fearless album, I loved. Thank you, wow. Like literally, it was one of my favorites, especially during the pandemic. I think you released it at the right time due to the situation. And then I wanted to bring you on earlier, but for some reason I kept screwing that up. So yeah, sorry about that. that because i didn't feel like that album got around as much as it should have i mean yeah because of the situation yeah Yeah. but it was top tier everyone i highly suggest you look it up and listen to it but i just wish to know more about that album first off okay what what because that's a big difference than the previous album before that so what made you actually go about it that way is that going to be we're going to get more music from that group at least right Mm-hmm. Okay, so what- well, I love that group, and I I definitely want to circle back to that group as soon as I can. Um, mm-hmm. That music to me was was really special because it it sort of documented a time in my life where everything was changing around me, where I lived, my own body. I was uh, battling a really bad case of Lyme disease, um, and I didn't know if I was even going to be able to play again when I recorded that album. So I had all this music. And I had saved this this funding, you know, to record an album. And, you know, I could have waited and said, oh, I want to wait. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. But I didn't know if I'd really ever be where I even was then because my my um, nervous system was deteriorating. So I said, I have to record this music if it's my last album. And, you know, and it could be at that point, the doctors didn't know whether or not I was going to end up with basically having MS or being able to play. So even before the pandemic, I was already thinking, oh man, what what else can I do in life? I've never thought about really doing anything else. Uh, music was my world, my everything. So um, I was already in this headspace of, well, I'm gonna put together the most meaningful band, the most meaningful music, you know, and um, do my best. And it, it has a vibe, it, it definitely no. is a thing, and luckily, I felt yeah. the whole thing, the emotion, literally from start to finish, people, I highly suggest you listen to at least that album from her. Thanks. And yes, I agree. It didn't get the most wave or the hype or anything that I would like to have from it. But yeah, it definitely got my attention. I don't know what else you want me to say on that. I think it was genius. Well, thank you. I, I would like to do another album like that again. Please do. Please keep those same people too. <laughs> possible <laughs> uh, another thing I wish to make fun of because I also found this out 
when I was preparing for this interview. There is an Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame. Yes, there is. <laughs> that there is, is just weird. Congratulations on being a member of it, but that's just weird. <laughs> Thank you. I know it seems like that in this day and time, but a lot of players came from Oklahoma. And, you know, Count, Count Basie was in that circuit, Lester Young, and Charlie Christian is from Oklahoma, Oscar Pettiford, I mean, Chet Baker. I knew Frank West, who was the alto player with Count Basie, and he was from Oklahoma. Um, and and so for me, it was an honor to be included, you know, with those people. And yeah, there's I, a scene in Oklahoma. I'm just saying, okay, I mean, I wish <laughs> I'm going to do, that's what that's project of me. I'm going to start. I'm going to start the New York Jazz Hall of Fame now because of you. But yeah, I didn't know that many people actually came from Oklahoma and actually hit the jazz scene that big. So impressive. I didn't know about that. So you taught me that today. <laughs> Another thing I wish to tease you about is Juilliard. I always tease <laughs> everyone that comes on here from Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. My love hate relationship with that school. <laughs> your love hate relationship? Yes. So you got your masters there, right? You didn't get your I undergrad. Did. And how no, was that? Oh, it was great. Um, the thing was, I was very fortunate. I got a full scholarship because um, before that, I was literally on the streets. I had gone to finish my bachelor's at New School under a scholarship, and I was hanging around at Fat Cat and. Cleopatra's Needle, just, you know, sessions and trying to play and everything. And I just needed some more time, some some time to percolate, you know, right? Um, so I wanted to get to the, the root of jazz history. I wanted to study Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet and the beginnings of jazz before bebop, because up to that point, I had really come in the game at Bird. Um, so when I was there, you know, I studied with Victor Goins and... Um, you know, I had some great teachers. I met some great peers. Uh, we got to play at Lincoln Center all the time and, and tour. It was my first experience touring for the most part. Um, not to say there weren't some downsides. You know, it was, it was really stressful. Um, and as someone who didn't come from much and being surrounded by other students who had really come from a lot and had a lot of family support and that kind of thing, that was, that was difficult for me. Um, Let me be toxic. I want to hear about all the bad stuff for Juilliard. <laughs> no, it, you know, it was it was rough sometimes. But actually, in the end, what I took away from it really created a lot of the professional that I am. So, could you explain you know, that more? Yeah, uh, they they taught me what my rate should be, and it was way higher than anything I had ever thought of you know, and how to to get paid, um, which was really important, you know, showing up on time, having the music memorized. When you when you prepare for a gig, a lot of young people, and I talk to my students about this, they say, oh, I checked it out. I checked out the music. Or someone might even say, hey, did you check out the music? And so, oh, yeah, I checked it out, which to this generation now means like listening to it. But when I was coming up in Juilliard, and my generation and before, from what I know, when you say you checked it out, that means you actually learned it and you could play it by memory, right? You know it. And yes, I agree with that. It, There's a lot of pros from yeah. Juilliard. I'm not going to lie. It's just, like I say, my whole thing with conservatories, I think a lot of them are overpriced. They are. And I would have never been able to go there had I not been on scholarship. 
also um, from me, someone who looks the way I do, I was having trouble being taken as valid in the jazz scene before two, we're talking before 2007. Please go. There was this, yes, you got there my was attention. No, like me too thing. There was this no, like we got to have women. No one really cared if I was there or not. Right. And most of the time I would play and I'd make some friends and whatnot. But like it wasn't a big deal that I was female and playing a saxophone. I was just someone playing the saxophone. And on top of that, there was more of this. Well, you're white and you're female. What do you have to say? You don't you don't really come from the lineage. You don't you know, my dad was a New Orleans. He's a musician who played in New Orleans and lived in New Orleans for 10 years. And he's a phenomenal talent, perfect pitch, photogenic um memory like you know he could play that music and that style so i grew up hearing that swing and the blues and everything but yet when i show up on the scene i had to somehow prove that i was valid and i always felt like i had to be twice as good and twice as soulful and twice as whatever you know in order to even be taken seriously so um for me when i there came a point when i finished new school i was like i just feel like I want to dig deeper into jazz. But if I'm out of school, I have to be, I was waitressing, I was bartending, I was doing everything just to get by and renting a room way uptown, you know? Um, and so I knew that if I finished school and I didn't get back in school or do something that I wasn't going to be on the road right away, you know, I wasn't going to be making all this money playing. I was going to be doing something else. And I didn't want to do that. So I auditioned for the Monk Institute. I auditioned for, you know, all these different programs. And I ended up landing the Juilliard Scholarship, which to me was amazing, you know, because someone with my background would have never been able to get into that school. And I know someone that looks like me is weird for someone that looks like me to say that. But that's that was my reality. I'm a black male. She's a white female. Okay, so I got (laughs) to ask point blank. Please tell me about the struggle of no seriously you step it on the stage and people don't think you have anything to say no they don't i've had people actually like grown men when i'm about to play a solo step right in front of me and like knock me back like i just don't i'm insignificant like I, you know during a jam session or just in yeah, general during a jam session okay well i a big belief i mean i tell people all the time there are a lot of a-holes in jam sessions a lot yeah, there's a lot of ambition and, and ego there, but it shouldn't be. It should be more of a community thing um, where we all learn from each other. And- the guest I had right before you was saying the whole community thing and then she was talking about her, I think it was gender equality jazz studies program. And I yeah. had some eh on that because at the end of the day, if you can't play, you can be as diverse as possible. <laughs> yes. I think that should be the marker. I think now we're in a place where everybody wants to be diverse, which is great. I have always said at this point, if you don't have one female in your band, you haven't thought about it hard enough because there's enough people out there. Right. Oh, no, um, I agree with you on that. Everything has to be diverse all around. But, you know, but do you really need a female in your about. band? If you- I think it can. I think it's definitely there's there's enough women now playing at a high level and that. The industry doesn't really do a good job of showing that, in in my humble opinion. No, it's all about I feel you. <laughs> like still we're in a place where there can just be like one or maybe maybe two now. So right? you're talking in a big person. band or in a, a quintet? No, even a quintet. There's some amazing women, um, 
but I've seen uh, amazing women that we know their names be looked over. People, you know, people who've played with Dizzy, people who, you know, have perfect pitch and can play anything. It's they get looked over. Um, I think it's part human nature and it's part of what I was saying of who we think fits and is valid in jazz. I think that still exists when the music is music. When I would walk into a session from the early 2000s and even before, I walked in as a musician, not as a female musician, just a musician. And that's all I ever wanted to be. But as I've grown and I've gotten older and I kind of see how things work, um, you know, it's easy to be comfortable and it's easy for people to always hire like, you know, people that are in their surrounding, which normally means similar uh, ethnicity, similar race, similar genders, that type of thinking. And while you may not want to take a chance, you know, oh, so-and-so does a great job. Why would I replace them? You know, you have to make room. For there to be change, people have to have to consciously try to make room. Okay. I agree on that. Now, this me being that a-hole on my part. Okay? So we're I, just going to go from the Say that one more time. You Me broke being up the a hole on my part, okay? <laughs> so we're just gonna pick on alma mater Juilliard, okay? Clearly, there's a class issue there sometimes with some of the students coming in. They literally go there just to get the bachelor's, and then they go somewhere else, get a master's in a completely different field, and they move on. Some of them see it as a, I'm bragging that I went to Juilliard, and now I have a master's in philosophy. Hmm. So the pad their resume, okay? I have nothing wrong with that. But don't you think sometimes like class issues is a reason why they always are together? Yeah. Oh, that can definitely be a factor. Class Ra- issues, race. where you're from, how you're raised. Yeah. And in America, to the Midwest, especially in the South, we're still a very segregated country. Okay. So you that's know? my whole thing on that. So if yeah. I start a group in the slums of New Orleans... I'm pretty much choosing my people and we move up together. Yes, but even in, there's a lot of great women players in New Orleans. Oh, just throwing an example out. I'm sorry, but you're right. There are a lot of great women players in New Orleans. Yeah, yes. And, you know, there are a lot of women players in New Orleans. There's a lot of players of all walks in New Orleans. And, you know, I understand there being something to playing who you come up with, playing who you're used to, who you're comfortable with. But I also think sometimes you have to take a chance. Like I said, change doesn't happen unless you step out of your comfort zone sometimes and um, start to include other people. Jazz is not about being safe. So in New Orleans, there's all kinds of people, all walks of life who can really play, for instance. You know, but it's natural for people to play with who they're used to being around, who they came up with, who they're comfortable with. And some of that is okay, but I also think for change to happen, you have to step outside of your comfort zone. So jazz, to me, has never been about being safe. I love that feeling of when I step onto the bandstand, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, you have to stay on your toes. You have to think quick. Um, And that's part of the art. So when you introduce um, new types of people from different backgrounds, different places into your music, you you don't know what can happen. It can be great, but you have to make room to create that. Um, Miles didn't just play with his own generation. Yeah, but that's yeah. Miles, and that's one of the problems I have with the jazz form in general, because 
as much as I love your album, don't get me wrong, I legitimately do. Could you do something else that actually pushes jazz even further? I can. But that's what I mean. And I mean further as does it get more people to listen to it, mainstream people listen to, to it. See, I would love that. And I started the project Electra. Um, and it was mm -hmm. my first album, mm -hmm. you know, with that with that group. And I'm trying to do more just kind of of that. I, I don't want to say genre, but that type of music. Um, but I do feel like it's not as accepted in the jazz community. Like I, I get the feeling when I talk with industry people, radio people and reviewers that why are their, their whole question is like, why are you doing this? What, what do you have to, I agree you with know? you on that. And I think that's part of the problem we have in the community. We have those jazz promoters, a lot of them who don't play who are deciding what gets heard on the very few jazz stations out there. Mm -hmm. Like a few episodes before, I had a guy who played with Buckshot LaFunk. Okay? It was a, a jazz fusion band before The Roots that was integrating rap and all that stuff. Like Bradford Marcellus was the filmer, I mean, founder of it. Mm -hmm. And then when I'm listening to it now and everything, I just say to myself, jazz really dropped the ball on that. Because yeah. I don't care how big you are as a jazz artist, if you had Drake on a verse, you'd be selling more albums than you could ever do in your whole life. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. And, but I think there's something I've noticed in jazz that's a little funny is you can integrate jazz with any other culture. We've integrated Indian music and, you know, Israeli music, and we've we've integrated Latin music. We've integrated almost every culture into jazz but when you integrate hip-hop oh my god when we integrate black music into jazz then it seems like the jazz police come out and that music is well, not the that's music that's a weird I statement because you say it's the black music <laughs> yeah it, it is but the jazz police are very toxic and i go over this all the time by the way everyone she was a top rising star nominee and winner for this year's downbeat I have respect for that magazine, but at the same time, I can't with that magazine. Because look how much stuff they gatekeeped or kept. And I'm just saying, right now, if we go back, literally, that was like 20 years ago, where Bradford started that, and he had grew, he when he was a feature on that. Mm -hmm. Way more than 20 years, though. Yeah, 20 years ago, we had Glasper. Okay. But do you get what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we missed that yeah. whole wave. And then we have artists right now struggling to sell 5,000 copies. Yeah, that are current. That are the big shots. Yeah, I'm not saying that um, it's, it's definitely something that needed to be addressed. But as far as Downbeat, they have their magazine. They do what they want to do. And it's I think they try to do a good job covering everything. Me being um, mean. Yes, they're doing a great job for what they have. Okay, I just have to be but, pointing out the flaws, just like people point out our flaws. It would over be here. nice. It would actually be nice if there was another media outlet that just covered that kind of jazz. You know, because the problem that I ran into with Electra was that jazz radio couldn't play it because it was electric. That's what everyone told me, and it even there some stations are not allowed to play music that has elect electric or anything to do with electric in the title. Really. Really? 
So you don't hear that kind of like um, music, you know, Marquise Hill, Keon Harrell, Robert, like that kind of music. You don't hear that on generally um, public radio stations unless they have a like late night jazz hip hop mm-hmm. party type hour or something like and and that's that stuff you're right is very relevant to the day i i would like there to be a publication that really covers that with maybe current hip-hop artists i get that and that's a lot of work and would people actually subscribe i understand that part but let us pick on the public radio part because as i say before as much as i love kind of blue that's 70 plus years old now Okay. Last time you went to the club, did you do the hustle? The hustle? My point exactly. (laughs) And the hustle came out 20 years after Kind of Blue. Right. Yes. Well, also, you're in New York, right? Yes, ma'am. You're on the East Coast? So your public radio station, last I checked, plays 70% classics. In Chicago, it's Uh, super WDCB plays mostly people that are alive. Oh, you pick in WB... BGO. It's a it's a public radio station. Okay, it's okay. I said it, <laughs> not her. But I also, yeah, that's not the most progressive. In Chicago, I'm telling you, this tune in on you can tune in online. They play a lot of people that are live live concerts in Chicago. They have artist broadcasts, so I mean, it really depends on the region and the station. I agree, but the number one jazz market, I mean, radio market in the world is New York. So you being played in New York once is equivalent to some places 10 times, hmm. if not more. So you have to factor that in. LA's number two. I used to know all the numbers. I don't remember them anymore. So that's another problem. Now, I understand they're playing what they like. I understand they're volunteering their time to give us great jazz music on these stations. But if it's turning off someone like me, who's willing to do a jazz podcast every week. You think the average kid is listening to it? No, I know my students. I say, I tell them to listen to radio and they're like radio. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> there you go. Thank you. But that's a problem. You know, both sides need, need help. Cause I don't think it's worth throwing away. I mean, it's going to be a dying field still. And then I know Spotify tries with the playlist, but at the same time, you could force your way or get your way on a playlist. Does it mean the best, people are going to be on these playlists. I still have never found a playlist I really like that I didn't create <laughs> on Spotify. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yes. Because <laughs> some of the stuff I even see there, A, this is not jazz, and I'm very progressive, but that's not jazz. And then B, something of this sound horrible. I said it. You don't need to say anything, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I The thing, though... We're kind of getting a place where we're talking about, and I love the realness of of it, and I see the issues, but we're also kind of talking about uh, what's good and what's not good. And honestly, I feel like everyone can create whatever they want to create and put it out. And it's it's not up to me whether really to like it or not. I hear it, and maybe I want to hear it again or not. But um, for me, you know, there's so much stuff out there that. You know, I'm really thankful to the radio stations for playing my stuff. I'm thankful to the magazines for letting, you know, getting my music out there. And um, there's, you know, there's sides of jazz I agree with. There's sides of jazz I I don't come from myself. Mm-hmm. But 
after having a son, I realized, you know, everyone in the room can paint what they want to paint in their corner. If you have a canvas, you can paint what you want to paint. Like, doesn't mean it's great. Doesn't mean it's not. But after you know, this I, interview, <laughs> I'm going to send you one of the songs. And then you're going to be like, no, I see exactly where he's coming from now. <laughs> but I do understand what you're saying. It's just this one that was sent to me. And I was just like, you're kidding me. Yes. That's what they did. Okay. Yeah. And if that makes them happy. Cool. That's maybe not what I'm going to do. But, you know, <laughs> to me, to stay healthy in the music is really um, essential to keep a mindset of non-comparison of like just following your own path, following what you think is true and, and from where you come from. Okay. So just on that alone. Okay. You're staying true to your own stuff. Are you making any returns on it? In what kind of returns? You mean no, anything in general or people saying, is it something that you're just happy you put out? Is it something that is monetizable? Is it something that you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Over time, the CDs do monetize a bit. It's not like having a, it's, it's not a job selling CDs, of course. But um, for me, the value, a long time ago, I realized that it was going to take a while for people to realize that I wasn't going to disappear and that I'm one of the best female saxophone players out there in the world. I would say top. You're my favorite. I'm not even going to lie about it. There you go. And, but I realized quickly that I wasn't going to get the recognition and the hype that other people did so quickly. So I decided it may not be a monetary return, but I need it to be documented. I need whatever I can do to be documented. And I need to keep creating albums so I get better at creating albums and getting closer. I still haven't really got to what I want to get to, but you know, hopefully each time I get closer to what I want. And um, it's, it's like, it's just kind of what I do, you know? And I was on some labels. I think it would take a, a really good deal for me to be on another label. I'm um, not opposed, but I've been saving the money and just putting them out myself because it's, it's my passion. It's what I love to do. And, um, you know, I also teach. I'm an adjunct college professor at DePaul, and I have a nonprofit program called Jazz Up where I, you know, teach high school kids. I bring in professional musicians. We work with them every summer about improvisation and communication and really what the music's about, the spirit, the blues, the community. Um, and those are the kind of things I've thought about lately where if I couldn't play again or if I was gone tomorrow, what would be important for me to leave behind? And it would be, you know, some music. It would be an educational component because not that I was born saying I want to be an educator. There are people like that. But from what I've seen, jazz is being taught in some of the worst ways. Ooh, and you give me a lot of stuff on, we want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, if it's going to be passed on. It's got to be passed on from, you know, the tradition from the I don't want to say there's a right way, but there there's definitely a wrong way. And when I see these programs like uh, run by great musicians like Terrell Stafford at Temple, Sean Jones at Peabody, you know, Rodney Whitaker at MSU. Um, when I see these programs run by musicians, I see a whole nother level 
of learning, of playing jazz and knowing what jazz is really about. And those students, even if they're not musicians, are going to leave with a much better um, you know, idea of what the music is and how to access it. You know, when I go to some other schools, it's most of the time very difficult to process that this is what they're learning and this is how they're learning it. And that's um, give me an example. It's really sad. Um, well, directors who don't give their students, let's say, let's just narrow down to big band, big band charts composed and arranged by jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. When you look into the libraries, jazz libraries of most schools, it's extensive. But when you really narrow down the amount of music that was composed and arranged by actual musicians um, that were known, not just musicians that are like local musicians, but great musicians, geniuses, it's very, very small. And on top of that, there's usually only two female composers and we know who they are, Toshiko and Maria. So, yeah, yeah. and not that, but that's, those are just two very specific forms of, you know, a viewpoint. Um, okay, well, so yeah, we so have these arrangers making all this money off of schools buying big band charts where they, they don't even have the original recordings to check out because their chart doesn't match that. You know, people are teaching jazz out of books. It's just, you know, it's not the way. And if this music is going to continue with the same kind of um, spirit and lineage that it's had, we need more musicians passing it on to the younger generation, just like Dizzy did and just like uh, uh, Betty Carter did. You know, we hear about so many great Art Blakey. They were the teachers of that generation. Okay, we, uh, there's a lot to unpack there, which I agree with a lot, but some of the stuff I got to question, okay? So we got women jazz composers. Now, Terry Carragher at least put together the new standards books where it's pretty much just all female composers. Okay. I think that was great. She did. It. But the question is, do people want to hear those standards? Because the truth is, when you open up a real book, the, you know, the real book, there are only certain songs everyone wants to play and certain people want to hear. So even with that book, there's probably like 10 songs that is on and off on every jam session. Yeah. So you don't think that's the same thing affecting the big band charts? No, I think that's different. That's, okay. uh, I, at least that book is out there. No, right? but that's right. I have no problem with her. I actually think it's great she put that book out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a great thing to have out there. Um, no, the big band thing is a whole different because I don't know many musicians of course you know there's like herbie with watermelon man there's certain cases but not many musicians made a ton of money off of a tune like a composition right they recorded it played it it kind of moves on a big band chart can circulate through all the universities worldwide and and people make a lot of money selling big band charts to schools so there's there's a whole you know undercurrent of people who never played in the Dizzy Big Band or the Basie Band or the Mingus Band or any of the, like, they didn't hear Jimmy Heath's writing and Slide's writing firsthand, but they're arranging for schools specifically. And it's not really as swinging. The harmonies are not as colorful. You know, it's, okay. 
It's, just, it's kind of like a watered down version. Like if we play, take the A train, you can play Dukes or you can play many versions of watered down versions of A train. And most of the band directors, since Hal Leonard sells a lot of those and <laughs> no knock to Hal Leonard, but you know, it's the most accessible. Yes, it is. So this is a market. I'm saying with the big bands, you know, since you get jazz instructors who maybe learn some jazz in college and learn kind of how to teach jazz, but they don't really know how to teach jazz. So they go to the most accessible thing and buy it and teach it to their kids. That's a different problem. Now, the book you're talking about with Terry Lynn, um, I think it's great she put it out. I think the issue we may have with that is the same issue you were talking about with more modern jazz and, and like hip hop fused jazz. It's who is going to listen to it or read it, right? Who is going to consume that and how are they gonna know about it because who's pushing it? So, and, and why is it cool to do that? So we know why it's cool um, to listen to hip hop jazz and all that, but, but a, a book of um, women's charts, people have to be pushing that. People have to say, Okay, we could learn, you know, we we could learn, I don't know, who's who's a modern artist, an artist or any artist. We could learn this piece from jazz history. We could we could play Watermelon Man or, you know, we could play a tune from Terry Lynn's book today and just check it out. But it takes people being open-minded and having access to that. Okay. Ah, by the way, your big band rebuttal was outstanding. I have nothing to say on that part. Good one. <laughs> They didn't think of it that way. So, yes. Uh, first of all, tell me about Jazz Up. That's another thing I wrote oh. down quickly. Jazz Up is, is like my, my new passion. Uh, Jazz Up is a, real quickly, is a summer program that I put together for kids who don't live in the city and don't have parents that take them to the city to hear jazz. Maybe they don't have musician parents, you know, like I did. So um, they... They really want to play. They're hard workers. I had like 40 students over the pandemic um, and before that, and I had almost 10 of them make Allstate every year. But A, you don't really learn how to be a great jazz soloist in Allstate big band. B, um, unless you're taught or part of your community is to form these communities of small groups, you just end up playing an instrument and then going through the college system and playing an instrument. And my goal with Jazz Up is to teach these students, like I said, how to communicate, how to play together, how to communicate just musically, learning the music by ear instead of from a lead sheet. You know, and I bring in professionals from Chicago, from New York, some of the greatest musicians to work with them all week. And, um, you know, by the time they leave, it's they they have these groups that I've heard that they actually continue playing in throughout the year. Okay. So it's my nonprofit program and, you know, I, I, this is the third year, so next year will be the fourth year. I'm super excited. No, I'm glad you're doing that. And people, just so you know, she, what you know, she's playing with Big Dog. She used to play with Herbie Hancock, and she played with my boy Jeremy Pelt. By the way, I think he has the album of the year so far. But I'm jealous that you actually got to play with him. <laughs> Which one is that? Which one is that? The standards. The one... Yes. His love stories. Yes, I think he has the I album of the year it. right now. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. It's great. He's he's a monster player. Get him on your next album. Add him in a track. My next <laughs> album's recorded. Oh, when does it come out? 
It comes out in late June. Okay, everyone, <laughs> late June. We're going to try to get her back. Yes, nice. <laughs> but that one has Christian McBride, Cyrus Chestnut, Lewis Nash, Terrell Stafford, and Michael Dees. Outstanding. Okay. <laughs> so tell me what you're willing to tell me about that album besides that lineup, which is sick. Yeah. Well, <laughs> when I was in Oklahoma, something that really inspired me was hearing Getting To It. Right. And all those Warner Brothers recordings. And, you know, I heard Cyrus so much. And then Lewis and Christian have played together so much to get that specific rhythm section together again was kind of a dream of mine. I was um, talking to my husband one night who was a pianist. And I was like, what if what if I did an album with that? And he's like that rhythm section. I said, I know I want to play with that rhythm section. Um, And it's meaningful to me because I played with Lewis and Cyrus in not only the Dizzy All-Stars for at least 12 years, but also I've played in Lewis's quintet and Cyrus's quartet um, many, many times. So, you know, they feel like musical family to me and Christian as well. I got to play with Christian in Aspen and um, at a Juilliard concert, we played quartet. It was amazing. So I always wanted the chance to play with him again because really he inspired me so much. And same with the horn players, they're musical family as well um, and people I love. So. Uh, I love their playing, everything. So I um, I put this together and I wrote music specifically for that band and um, flew to New York. We made the album and most of it was first takes, maybe second take here and there. Like first take, we don't run it through. We just, here's the chart, record, go. We talk it through, we talk it down and then count off and go. That's jazz at its finest, people. <laughs> it, was, it was like, I want to say riding a Cadillac, but like a Maserati or something. <laughs> Dang, man. Man, because we did the whole session in, I want to say, a little less than four hours. How many tracks? Eight tracks. Oh, this is going to be really good. Oh, okay. Yeah. It was just <laughs> like, that's it. Oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. So, okay. um yeah that was that was fun and before that in february i'm coming out with my female band called alliance actually it's it's i uh, love women in jazz tell me about this female band go yeah it's, it's run by both me and a drummer named colleen clark who's the professor of jazz studies um at south carolina state and and um yeah we put this group together i had a great bass player at at the Paul in class and she was phenomenal. So she graduated and I snapped her up. She's, you know, I can't wait for people to hear Carmani. Um, there's a pianist at Peabody named Hannah, Hannah Mayer, who is on the album. We did a week, um, weekend. So four nights at the jazz showcase. Then I brought him to my studio. We recorded, I think 10 tunes. And, um, we really want to come out of, you know, swing and blues and a jazz tradition while still being modern, uh, I think there's a lot of ground to be covered there. And there's, there might be a stereotype that women don't do that, you know, as much. Um, because although it's cool, I love being modern. I love playing modern, but you know, Roy Hargrove could play any style with anyone, right? He played with, from Erica Badu and D'Angelo to, um, just straight ahead bebop. Mm -hmm. And he would always tell me, I'm just a bebop musician. I'm just, I just play bebop, you know, and while it doesn't, he just knew how to shape it. And really, if you know the jazz tradition and you know, early jazz and bebop, 
from there, you can go anywhere. You can do anything. You can be as modern as you want with it if you're an artist and you really know how to use it. So anyway, the whole premise for this band is yes, that we're all female, but also we swing hard, you know? Okay. We. There's another all female group. One that starts with an A. a. You gonna take them out? No. Oh, boo. I want want a battle. (laughs) Yeah, they've been around for at least what? All you need is one album better than theirs. What's better? That's, that's okay, that's fair. What is better? Yes. And trust What's me, better? a lot of them came on the show before. So I'm not but trying I, to say anything bad. I just want to see competition. And I love them and respect them all. I just think there should be more than one. Like I said, there needs to be room for more than one. And they play a certain style of jazz, which is cool. Um, but I would like a group that plays a different. So, you know, they're not the same. Okay. They're just different. And the, the, the title Alliance uh, allows us to also have men in the group that we feel have been supportive of women. There's many male musicians who have championed women musicians. Um, my favorite was the late, great James Moody. And, you know, he and his wife told me stories about how festivals would say he couldn't hire Rini Rosness in his band because she was a woman. They didn't want a woman on stage with him. And he said, you have me with Rini or you don't have me. Um, so, and there's modern day musicians that always, Michael Dees always includes women. You know, there's, there's certain band leaders that are very, uh, very conscious of hiring women. So it's these people that have always been supportive of women, um, that we want to have guests with us in Alliance. Okay. I'm, like I said, that's great. Thanks for pointing that out. Looking forward towards that album. I still would like to see a battle off between those two woman bands. Hey, it may happen. That would be great. <laughs> and don't get me wrong. I have no problem with women in jazz because especially when I was trying out for big bands and everything, I'm a percussionist. There was this one female, name won't be given, that would always come to these auditions and she would just destroy me. So it's not, I always had that thing in my head like, nah, a woman can play drums. This girl just, Yeah. <laughs> A paddle diddle diddle was like six times better than mine. And we're talking from like middle school. So, <laughs> but she gave it up, which is something I still not happy about. Yep. Yeah. Okay. On that. Yeah. So tell me something people misunderstand about the music world. I want to hear from you. Oh, the music world. I don't know. I try not to think about it. Ah. You know, the closer I am to just creating and being a better musician, the, you know, I'm just happier and I'm better for that. When I start thinking about the music world and what's wrong with it or what could be different, um, you know, unless I have a fix for it, it's just a waste of time for me. A fix for it. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Since the best co- thing I can do to fix the music world is to show up and be the baddest I can be. Okay, fair. What would you do to fix the jazz music world? <laughs> um, maybe just a, a wider net for all kinds of music. Um, and I don't mean, you know, one thing I'm kind of tired of hearing is like straight eighth nebulous type jazz. Um, yeah. I don't mean that. I mean, um, like 
considering that music that swings, and I say this a lot, I'm saying this a lot this morning, but music that swings has soul and blues, maybe even tells a story, doesn't mean it's old fashioned, right? And I would change the perception of, um, it, you know, jazz needs to have a wider net. I think it's already had a wide net for musics from many, many cultures, but I wish it would include uh, just to have more diversity. Like, for instance, you know, Yasushi Nakamura is an incredible bass player. Yes. Mike Rodriguez is an incredible trumpet player. We don't see musicians. There are, and just like there's plenty of great female musicians, there's plenty of Asian and Hispanic jazz musicians that we don't see. But we're more likely to see Canadians, Israelis, right? People from Latin America is um, that are from Latin America because I guess it's exotic or whatnot. But yeah. we see more of that or just you know, white people, <laughs> we see a lot of that. That's, but I agree on that. Just so you know, other, yeah, keep going. Thank you. What about other cultures that are really playing the tradition, right? Like Mike Rodriguez is one of the baddest jazz trumpet players. Yasushi is one of the baddest Asian jazz players, right? And I know they don't think of themselves that way, just like I don't think of myself as a female jazz musician, but the industry does put us in boxes and it's like, you know, action figures and whatnot and what's the most popular action figure who's the best jedi who's the you know? <laughs> it's that's what the industry does and I, I think that's completely separate to music but it's real no it is real hey my favorite so, jazz pianist right now alive on the circuit is a japanese female and it's not the one you're thinking of no no it's not hiromi not Hiromi. Uh, who's the other one that played with Jeremy Pell on her album? Wait, Jeremy she had her? Huh? Connie. Connie Han. Nope. No? Nope. My engineer who knows who it is, but no. <laughs> she you doesn't get any... Me? I tell you after. Because <laughs> one day I got to bring her on here. <laughs> so, I do agree on that. People get put into boxes. It limits it. We don't hear enough Japanese jazz in this country, in my opinion, there's some heavy Scandinavian European stuff in general doesn't get played mm -hmm. over here. And I don't know if that's just because they don't know how to say their names. I don't know if it's because they just don't get those albums in their emails. I don't know what it is. I, I think it still comes back to validity and who we see as valid. Like jazz didn't come from Scandinavia, right? Okay, and, fair. Okay. So... Not that it's not happening there, it can be, but mixed between not being able to say their names and this, who are you? You haven't come up in, in New York and American jazz. We tend to hold that we to uh, that culture. Uh, Russian, I think Russians have it hard. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm horrible with names already, so I can only imagine some other people. <laughs> so that's a fair point too, ma'am. Okay, so ma'am, just a few other questions. Then I'll let you go, okay? First of all, your whole story about how the, even the album Flawless came out with the Lyme disease and you saying that you just had to do this. I thought that emotion, I didn't know that. I probably felt that even more now that you pointed that out. So I just want to say, love you for that. <laughs> I also want to say, if you could turn back in time and speak to your 18-year-old self, would you talk them out of being a jazz artist no no okay 
the people who say yes, no matter how good they are, they're just like, yeah, even though I did good and I accomplished stuff, <laughs> they're just like, not really worth it. Well, you know what? I'd be lying if I didn't say I thought about it. I thought about it a lot, but you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't have had such a colorful experience at life, traveling and meeting different people and playing, you know, most people don't get to do that. And maybe I would have had a bigger house, a nicer car. I don't know. Maybe my kids, my, my son would have, um, you know, his life a fund or something. I don't know. Maybe I would have more money, but, uh, I think it's important what we do and I'm happy with it. Okay. So what is your dream project? Oh man, I just did it. Literally? That was it? I mean, I love it already, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I recorded it. Um, I have many dream projects though. If you didn't have money as an issue, if, if money was not an issue, what would it be? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. There's so many things I could do. I, I just kind of did that with this Christian McBride and Lewis and Cyrus project. Um, but you know, there's so many people I want to play with and record with. There's, you know, actually I don't, I don't really, there's so many things I could do recording wise, but my dream is really to have a band that this is my band. We play my music and arrangements and whatever, and I could really put on my own, um, experience. You know, I don't want to say show, but I can, you know, put on my own experience, um, with my own band, travel with my own band. And for some reason, I've never really been able to do that. Uh, you know, of course I'd love to have, you know, Claffy and Mark and Richard, the, the, the band on my fearless album, but you know, everyone's so busy and okay. you have to be really, really touring and making some money to be able to have a band like that. Um, so we'll see. Okay. So why do you think no jazz groups? Like all of them, how come no, none of them are able to cross over onto the pop charts? Uh, I, I don't, well, I mean, that's a long, well, some did, didn't, um, Esperanza get, yeah, Esperanza did, Nora Jones did. I'm just saying within the yeah. past 10 years, we'll say, cause I think Esperanza did that 2011. Maybe. Yeah. Something like that. So how come nobody within the past five years? I don't know. Uh, I really don't, but I do listen to just like top 40 radio sometimes. And although some of it is cool and I like it for what it is, I like it for what it's for. Every music has a purpose. Um, you know, back 10 years ago, still, I think pop music was more creative. I think when I hear pop music these days, I hear an algorithm, you know, four chords. Okay. And it's harder as an artist to integrate in that when there's just people aren't used to hearing more anymore. Okay. Um, so why don't you make an album or just one song on the album where it's four chords and you make it poppy? Just curious. I don't know. Well, I kind of did that with an Adele cover over the pandemic, but I haven't released it because I can't find the video um, <laughs> with dancing and everything. <laughs> I did. I think it was great. It was a sax duo. I played with myself and um, 
I was in hip hop dance at the time. And I, so I did all this dance and stuff. I have to put that out eventually. I, it's not that it, I wouldn't want to do it. It's just not my direction right now. Okay. Um, I've always wanted to affect popular music in some way. I, I, right now, I'm really not sure how that would happen. But like you said, having Drake on an album would be killing. I mean, <laughs> that would be the best-selling jazz album of all time, even if it sells nothing. Not in jazz. <laughs> what do you mean? In j no jazz artist sells. I I don't know. Okay, listen, if you can find me like a jazz artist that actually sells, bring them to me. I, yeah, I wish, you know, this this started happening long before us, even. No, I know that. I agree. You know, and it's so far removed now. I think someone, it, it would take a huge effort, but someone should bring it back. I think Rob is doing a great job, Robert Glasper. Yeah, but He's is that really jazz, though? I love Robert. I go see him all the time. Yeah. But is that really... What we I think it is, but I think when you get in, that's when you bring up the question of um, how can you integrate in a, like really for it to be jazz, you, not that it's its definition, but you can only do so much with four chords. So then it comes down to the beat, you know, it's really the beat and how it's played and whether or not it has a vocalist. And is it jazz because it has a little improvisation? Well, that's most of the pop tunes in the eighties, right? <laughs> It had a little improvisation. That is true. So. Uh, but why yeah, can't you have a radio version and then I go see you live and I'm just blown away even more? Oh, I would love that. I mean, I was getting to that with my Electra band with doing like an Alicia Keys cover and a Bjork cover. And I had a vocalist. And then when I play, I don't usually have the vocalist with me. So I just play it instrumental. Um, but, there, you know, the I think. To do that, you'd have to battle the whole pop industry, radio industry, which is already making plenty of money using recycled progressions and recycled music and having a new face on it every five years or so. So, you know, that's someone put it once that that's disposable music and disposable music is very popular right now. Now, I don't feel like for a long time, I tried to carry that on my shoulders, but I don't really feel like it's my job to educate all of America about how great music is and jazz is. That that ball was dropped a long time ago. And although I'd like to see it change, I don't think I can carry that weight of changing pop music. Or, you know, that's, that's okay. just not my mission. No, I understand. If anyone wants to listen to pop music, go right ahead. <laughs> I'm just saying I would love it if some of these artists actually got on the real pot billboard 100 charts it'd be awesome yes that's all i'm saying okay i know marcus strickland got on a billboard chart with his arrangement of um janet jackson's tune one of janet jackson's tunes recently no it was like 10 well yeah, yeah okay like okay <laughs> you never know i try I to keep up with everything doesn't mean it's happening or working yeah, but, you know, even it can make the top 40, but it doesn't mean it's in the rotation of being played on the radio like Taylor Swift and Bieber and all of those. Well, that's a different yeah. level altogether on the Billboard charts. I just like you to be there on the popular oh. pop charts. <laughs> that's a huge win, at least to me. I would, too. I would like to see that, but I don't know what I would do to, to constitute that right now. Okay, that is fair. So 
somebody who's about to go major in music, what advice would you actually tell them, like coming out of high school? It really depends on the student or the person. But generally, um, make sure that you have a plan. You know, dream, dream. I think a lot of students are afraid to dream these days. Dream bigger than you think you would dream. So I tell everyone to make a list of five people that are really famous that you could never imagine yourself playing with. Write them down um, that you would want to play with. Then write down a list of five people you think is maybe possible for you to play with. And then work backwards. Think about who their agents are, who their you know managers are. Think about what record label they're on. Who do you know that might know somebody? And you know you have to you have to draw these lines and make these connections to create your own community because no one just shows up and is you know everyone has this dream of just being discovered, right? And discovered is a great artist. Yeah, that's American Idol for you. <laughs> yeah, it, maybe American Idol is the closest thing we have to that. But yeah, that just really doesn't happen without putting the other work in. And when you dream big, you may not reach those exact dreams, but other things will happen along the way um, that actually gets you either there or beyond there. And you may not even know what's for you. Okay. Yeah. And last question before we end this, Charlie Parker or John Coltrane? Oh, that's not even fair. Yes, it is. Go answer the question. Come on. That's not even fair. Because there would be no John Coltrane without Charlie Parker. Ah, you gave me the, okay, well, she gave me the PC answer, people. (laughs) It's not the PC answer. It's just, this is real. There would be no John Coltrane without Charlie Parker. Because John grew up listening to Charlie Parker and learned Charlie. He started on alto and he was an alto player and him and Jimmy Heath played like Bird. And Johnny Hodges. Okay, fair. Uh, but yeah, I depends on the day. But if overall, I'd probably say I'd put on a Coltrane album before Bird these days. But I probably wouldn't put either one of them on because I've heard them all a million times. And not that they're not great, but there's so much music out there. Like I'm just, I'm just into consuming a lot of music right now. Okay, that is fair, people. <laughs> So, ma'am, can you please tell the people how to contact you, your website, your social media, all that stuff, please? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, you can always reach me at SherelleCassidy.com, S-H-A-R-E-L, Cassidy. And then um, my Instagram is Sharel, S-H-A-R underscore E-L-L-E, I believe. Uh, Facebook, same thing. I probably sound old mentioning Facebook. yeah you can find me mostly at my website okay well ma'am thank you for coming on it was an honor don't get me wrong (laughs) and everyone Leander from Improv Exchange thank you have a good one that's that on jazz thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.